Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is about yawning. Yawning is actually an involuntary action that most humans do, starting even in the womb. We've seen research that says fetuses as young as 11 weeks old start yawning. But it turns out that contagious yawning doesn't happen until you're about age four. And even now, scientists haven't quite figured out why when one person yawns after someone else does, it seems to keep propagating to everyone else in the room. But there are suggestions that it may be a sign of empathy that helps human beings bond with each other. So that means in your next meeting, if you need to yawn, I guess you should. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. We have a great interview today with Dr. Chris Masterjohn. Chris is a really well-known blogger, a writer, and researcher in the health community, mostly because of his critical thinking, because of his excellent articles, and his really kind of laid-back, non-dogmatic approach to nutrition. I really respect Chris and what he has to say and what he has uh, to write, and I'm really pleased to have him on the show. He's going to talk with us today about one of the most common myths about health and disease, saturated fat. 
If you're one of those people who is still avoiding bulletproof coffee and our recommendations for butter and coconut oil because you're concerned about your health, you really want to listen to our conversation with Chris. Uh, he's a very rational guy, and I think he's in line with the recommendations about saturated fat. Now we're going to move on to our exclusive interview with Chris Masterjohn from cholesterolandhealth.com. Chris, I'm super excited to have you here. Welcome. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much, Dave. Well, we're going to take maximum advantage of the time we've got with you on the interview today, so we're going to jump right in. All right. First question. Does saturated fat raise cholesterol levels? Well, it depends on the context. Uh, so there's pretty clear evidence uh, going back to the 1950s that if you substitute saturated fat uh, for oils or fats rich in polyunsaturated fat, uh, so for example, if you substitute coconut oil or butter for oils such as corn oil, safflower oil, and so on, uh, that you'll increase cholesterol levels relative to those other oils. It becomes much less clear if you're trying to compare saturated fat to carbohydrate, saturated fat to monounsaturated fats. Uh, you're looking at much smaller differences and uh, a little bit more uh, complex differences. So, for example, uh, saturated fat will tend to increase uh, total cholesterol but uh, will increase HDL cholesterol as well as LDL cholesterol relative to carbohydrate, and there's differences in particle size and other things like that. Uh, so it becomes even more complex when you're talking about a diet because if you're saying, okay, meat is high in saturated fat, does eating meat raise your uh, cholesterol or does eating you know, any other types of foods that are rich in saturated fat, it's very difficult to say because whenever you make dietary changes, you're including a food that has a multitude of components in it besides saturated or unsaturated fat, and you're also displacing other foods. And since different foods have different effects on satiety, you could be changing total caloric intake and so on and so forth. So uh, it would be incredibly simplistic to say that saturated fat raises cholesterol levels, uh, but there are certain contexts in which that statement is true. So I read an article by Stefan Guillen a while ago about how a, a lot of saturated fat increases cholesterol in the short term, but over the long term, they normalize. Do you have anything to say about that? Uh, yeah, and I've, I've talked with Stefan about this uh, a little bit, and I think that we're pretty close to agreement with each other on this. Um, if you substitute saturated fat for polyunsaturated fat in a very controlled uh, setting, over the course of the long term, the saturated fat will result in higher blood cholesterol levels than the polyunsaturated fat. Uh, in the case of Stefan's post is about observational studies, and uh, this is, of course, looking at a more realistic scenario where people are not in such a controlled setting and they're choosing natural foods, uh, and they're doing so over the long term. Uh, but it's also in a setting that is much more confounded by all those variables that I was just talking about. So these people aren't choosing to drink a milkshake that said it's fat replaced with corn oil or something like that that you might see in a laboratory setting. They're choosing foods like coconut or meat or you know junk foods rich in saturated fat, natural foods rich in saturated fat, and... Uh, you have so many other interacting factors. So I don't think that those studies 
what he showed was that in, in these observational studies, there's no evidence that people who have higher saturated fat intakes have higher blood cholesterol levels. But I don't think that's just because it's over the long term. I think it's also because there are so many other variables that enter into play when you're in a natural situation. When you're in a highly controlled laboratory situation, uh, things are different and you can isolate those other variables out and show that if you substitute animal fat for um, vegetable oils and you keep everything the same, then you do see that change even over the long term. And the best demonstration of that is the LA Veterans Administration Hospital study where they took about 850 men uh, who were inpatients in a veteran's residence home and they randomly allocated them to one of two dining halls. Uh, the two dining halls over the course of eight years fed everyone the exact same food, but in one they used animal fats in the cooking and in the other they used a mix of vegetable oils in the cooking. And even over the course of those eight years, the differences in blood cholesterol levels were sustained over very long periods of time. So the question is, is that finding relevant? Uh, well, it's not relevant to the point where you can say that any diet that's rich in saturated fat from natural sources is going to lead to higher blood cholesterol levels than some other diet that's rich in vegetable oils. That's not true. And that's what Stefan's post showed, that people who eat diets high in saturated fat do not necessarily have higher blood cholesterol levels than other people. So let's say that saturated fat does raise cholesterol. Does that equal heart disease? No, it doesn't because cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease. And if you want the clear evidence for this, we can go back to the cholesterol-fed rabbit model, which is the model that everyone always wants to go back to when they're trying to prove that cholesterol does cause heart disease. But if we actually go back to that model, which was really the sort of the beginning of this idea that cholesterol causes heart disease, the clear demonstration that this idea is false is that if you injected these rabbits with tons of cholesterol, they wouldn't develop any atherosclerosis. And so uh, from the get-go, when we were trying to look at this idea about the role of cholesterol in heart disease, we see that it's much more complex than simply having cholesterol accumulating in the blood and creating a plaque. Uh, what we have is a disease that's caused by the oxidative degeneration of lipids in the blood. So we should be less focused on controlling the amount of lipid in the blood and more focused on uh, preventing the inflammation and oxidative stress that leads to the uh, degradation of vulnerable lipids in the blood because it's this type of oxidative destruction and inflammation that's actually causing the plaque. So saturated fat in a very highly controlled setting uh, can raise blood cholesterol levels, uh, but it, we don't necessarily care about that. We care about whether, uh, whether blood cholesterol levels uh, excuse me, we care about whether saturated fat or some other type of food is actually going to cause heart disease. And the evidence for that is is incredibly poor. And in, in fact, there's plenty of evidence to refute it. Uh, in the few trials that have been done over the long term, uh, looking at whether substituting vegetable oils for uh, traditional animal fats could prevent heart disease, uh, those trials miserably failed to uh, provide any evidence uh, that, in fact, vegetable oils could protect against heart disease. And what they showed instead was that vegetable oils might 
actually cause heart disease and almost certainly cause cancer when they're substituted for traditional animal fats. So I think uh, I think if we look at the evidence, we see that uh, saturated fat does have the potential to raise blood cholesterol levels, but it, it probably protects against heart disease and 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 more even more clearly probably protects against cancer. I I love hearing this, and I, I I've come to the same conclusions, and that's one of the reasons that there's high saturated fat in in the bulletproof diet, which is uh, something that we talk about on the site a lot about how eating saturated fat from clean sources is unlikely to cause problems. But there's a there's a confounding factor here that I don't see addressed in any of these any of these studies, and I'm wondering if you've come across it. And that is the role of mycotoxins, even at parts per million concentrations in food. These are things that come from basically fungal contamination of feed that animals eat that bioaccumulate. And I've got a whole lecture that I gave on cardiovascular problems and the evidence of their link to mycotoxins in small amounts in food or the environment around us. Given that we couldn't measure mycotoxins until 1985, how do we know if any of these studies before then or any of the studies that didn't control for them were using contaminated animal fat from animals that were rendered improperly, stored improperly, or fed improperly? And is that a confounding variable we should think about? Yeah, I think that it's entirely plausible that mycotoxins and, and many other sources of inflammation are going to contribute to heart disease. And if you're not measuring the mycotoxins, then quite certainly you can't control for them. Uh, but that's sort of, I mean, that's the, uh, that, that could be true of, of a million other things that we could say, uh, you know, there, there are many other things that we could identify as potential, uh, potential causes of heart disease that these studies probably didn't control for. Um, yes, and I, I don't think you can levy that as a criticism against the investigators. I think at least some of these studies were done uh, pretty well in terms of you know what the knowledge base at the time was and and the intent of the study, which was uh, you know simply to say, okay, can we support this recommendation for people to go out to the grocery store and buy this oil instead of that oil? Uh, so I think you know some of these. Some of the studies were pretty badly done, but some of them were done pretty well in terms of trying to address that specific question. But I'm, I think what you're highlighting is that uh, you know there's there's always a great amount of uncertainty when we're doing scientific studies because even even if you show that something happens in the laboratory as a cause and effect phenomenon, that doesn't necessarily mean that that thing is happening outside the laboratory. So I think what you have to do is is try to look at the totality of the evidence and synthesize it in some way, but you really need something to fall back on, and you can't just rely on these clinical trials because you're always going to be able to find things that they didn't control for uh, because you know if you think about it, the vast amount of truth probably falls into three categories: things we haven't thought of yet things that we've thought of and we can't test and things that we can't even imagine. So, <laughs> you know, so some of the things fall into this tiny portion uh, of, you know, cur currently investigated controversial issues and mycotoxins probably falls into that category. But the other three categories are much larger than that. So, you know, when, whenever we make a decision to act on something and choose something to eat, 
we can't just rely on clinical trials because we could be doing clinical trials for thousands of years and probably still wouldn't have all the answers. Uh, so in my view, what we want to fall back on is some kind of framework for interpreting the uncertainty. And I think, you know, one of those things is to look at, you know, what has the greatest track record of success in human populations? What, you know, what kind of diets did people eat uh, before we came up with all of these uh, theories about what causes heart disease? And uh, can we can we look towards some of these populations that were well studied to be free of heart disease? And we have a number of those, uh, you know, in the Catavans are a currently fashionable example to look to. Uh, these are Pacific Islanders who were studied very extensively and shown to be free of heart disease. Same thing with the Maasai, a cattle herding tribe in Kenya and Tanzania. And what we see in these groups is that uh, they ate saturated fats. You know, the Catavans, the Catavans eat a very low-fat diet, but it's all coconut. So they're consuming 50% more saturated fat than Americans are. And they don't have any heart disease. The Maasai are eating plenty of animal fat, and uh, you know, either from meat or from butter fat, which is very saturated. And and they were shown to not have any heart disease either. So I think we need to uh, we need to fall back on those things and say, you know, we don't have all of the answers yet from clinical evidence. But if these kinds of diets, rich in traditional animal fats and traditional tropical oils, are associated with freedom from heart disease at the population level, then if these are the kind of fats and oils that humans have been eating throughout our existence until the 20th century, maybe those are safer bets uh, when, you know, when we don't have all the answers. That's the way that I view it. Very, very well put in that you have to look at the balance of evidence and then you have to look at what's what you can implement and what just makes sense. And then you need to test on your own self. How are you doing? Which is another part of certainly what I recommend. It says, okay, try it and see what happens over time to your own blood chemistry. And if you make a big change and it looks like you're going to die, well, then maybe you should undo that change. Uh, one of the big concerns that people bring up when they see me recommend that they you know, put uh, tablespoons of grass-fed butter in their coffee uh, to make bulletproof coffee is that saturated fat makes your platelets more likely to be sticky or more likely to clot. Um, I know lots of other things that make platelets sticky. I haven't seen a lot about saturated fat doing that. What's your take? Does saturated fat make you more clotty or less clotty? Uh, I have looked for evidence about that and not found any. So I, I would have to I have to look at the references that people are citing for this claim. But I'm I'm not aware of evidence that eating saturated fat is necessarily going to make your blood clot. I haven't found it either. In fact, I was once diagnosed with extremely high levels of thrombin when I was oh in my late 20s, actually, when I weighed 300 pounds. And I uh, now that I'm on a high saturated fat diet, I don't have that problem. And I'm not saying that that's causative at all, but I do know, for instance, many different toxins will cause your platelets to be sticky and even some other lifestyle things like exercise and oxygen levels. But um, you're one of the guys who's done an enormous amount of, of research here, more than I have on this stuff, and you haven't found it either. So uh, for people who say that, I, I think the right answer is, can you cite references? Because I don't know of the evidence of that. It sounds like you don't either. Well, at, at the end of the day, I think it's it's sort of a silly argument anyway, because, you know, the like we said before, there have been uh, long-term controlled trials looking at actual hard endpoints like heart disease over 
a long period of time substituting saturated fat for vegetable oils. And uh, those trials do not support at all and seem to at least somewhat contradict the idea that saturated fat causes heart disease. Uh, so to take an intermediate variable like blood clotting or uh, you know cholesterol levels or something like that and say, well, X causes Y and Y causes Z, therefore X must cause Z, I think is is a, a very wrong way to look at it. If the evidence shows, uh, or at least strongly suggests, that saturated fat doesn't cause heart disease, then uh, no matter what you find for intermediate variables, it just doesn't make any sense to argue that it does cause heart disease, especially when whatever studies might look at this are invariably going to be very short-term studies that are you know, much less comprehensive in scope than the studies that have already been done. And I think sometimes there's there's, are, there's a bias that enters into this that you want to look at the most recent evidence. But the last long-term properly controlled trials uh, were done, you know, the last one was published in the 1980s and the most comprehensive one, the LA Veterans Administration Hospital Study, was published in 1969. So you don't want to look at the most recent evidence. You want to look at the best evidence. And until someone, you know, has a better, more comprehensive, better controlled, longer-term trial than those trials that have been already been done, looking at real endpoints like heart disease incidence or heart disease mortality, then I don't think it makes sense to try to compile all the minutiae of things published recently of much lower quality to try to blame saturated fat on you know everything from heart disease to cancer to you know why your mother doesn't call you anymore or something like that you know. <laughs> so that's actually a perfect segue to our next question and another one of the things that people say about saturated fat and another recommendation as to why you should eat less or not eat it is that it causes cancer and you had an excellent post in your blog talking about some of the confounding factors about that and about a study that quote unquote showed that high saturated fat intake caused liver cancer could you talk about that does saturated fat actually cause cancer well if like once again, if we go back to the uh, LA Veterans Administration Hospital study, this was a study. Uh, you know, out of all of the sub, uh, all of the vegetable oil substitution studies that have been done, this is the most valuable one for looking at cancer because uh, it's the only one where the age group was uh, high enough, old enough to actually see a significant incidence of cancer. And what they showed in this study was that. Uh, for the first two years of this of the trial, there was no difference in the incidence of cancer between people consuming traditional animal fats and people consuming vegetable oils. But after two years, the incidence started to separate so that people consuming the vegetable oils had a greater incidence of cancer than, than those consuming the traditional animal fats. And once you got beyond five years, the uh, the difference became even wider. So it appears that the longer the trial uh, goes on, the more likely we are to see uh, an increased risk of cancer when we substitute vegetable oils for these traditional animal fats. Uh, so I, I think that there's pretty strong evidence that uh, traditional animal fats are protective against cancer. Are they protective against heart disease also? Uh, so this that's a little bit uh, more difficult to tease out. Uh, if we look at the, and 
for people who are interested in my my take on this in more detail, I gave a whole lecture focused on this at the last Wise Traditions, the annual conference of the Western Price Foundation in November, and you can order that online. Uh, but the there were there were six trials that were done substituting vegetable oils for traditional animal fats in a single factor trial, meaning that's the only thing that they change, so it's not confounded by other changes, and in a properly controlled, randomized setting. And two of those trials showed an increased risk of heart disease with vegetable oils. Two of, uh, one of them showed no difference. One of them was abandoned halfway through the study, and they they merged the saturated fat and unsaturated fat groups together to try to show that when they were merged together, they were both healthier than people who hadn't been part of the study, and they never gave us the answers about what actually happened to heart disease mortality and total mortality over the course of the study. And then two of them were double-blind. Uh, one was the Minnesota Coronary Survey, and the average length of time was only a year for any given subject in that study, and they showed no difference, although the trend seemed to favor an increased risk of heart disease with uh, the vegetable oil group, but it wasn't statistically significant. And then the final one uh, was the LA Veterans Administration Hospital study we've been talking about, and that study was conducted for a little bit over eight years. Uh, Most of the people in the study were probably on the diets for about six years or so. And uh, what we see there was uh, when we look at the study superficially, uh, it, we do see a decreased risk of heart disease with the vegetable oils, but an increased risk of uh, all-cause mortality, including cancer, such that there was no difference in total mortality. Now, that seems at first to go to suggest that the vegetable oils are shifting disease risk away from heart disease and towards cancer and other diseases. But it turns out that there were a number of confounders. The, the first was that the, the control group, meaning the group eating the animal fats, had um, twice as many heavy smokers and 60% uh, more moderate smokers. And uh, the treatment group, meaning the vegetable oil group, had an increase in light smokers and non-smokers. So we see that smoking uh, was heavily uh, shifted. In, uh, I'm sorry, the the uh, animal fat group had a much higher uh, incidence of smoking, heavy smoking and moderate smoking. And that we would expect to contribute to heart disease and cancer. Uh, so we can say that we're not quite sure whether it was the smoking or the animal fats that were contributing to the increased risk of heart disease. But we can also say that the animal fats seem to be protecting the smokers from getting cancer. But, you know, the the bigger issue was uh, they didn't go into detail what type of fats they were using. We know they used butter, but we don't know what other fats they were using. But the animal fat diet was very deficient in vitamin E compared to what we would expect from a mix of traditional animal fats. And it's difficult to speculate why, because they don't give enough details about the diet. Uh, But we would also expect the vitamin E deficiency to uh, contribute to heart disease. And I would think also to contribute to cancer. So when we 
when we analyze that trial alone, we see the heart disease is somewhat confounded. But when we analyze it with the other five trials that were done, I think the fair thing to say is that vegetable oils do not seem to protect against heart disease. They may increase the risk of heart disease, as was shown in at least uh, two of those trials. But I, I would be careful of, of making that conclusion so cleanly because of the conflicting evidence. I would say that uh, the veg that the animal traditional animal fats do seem to be protective against smoking and vitamin E deficiency when it comes to cancer. I think that conclusion is much clearer. At the end of the day, you know, the evidence just is not there to say that vegetable oils protect against heart disease because of those confounders in the LA Veterans Administration Hospital study, and because vegetable oils increased heart disease risk in other studies that didn't have those specific confounders. So, I think that. I think the answer is unclear, but it certainly it certainly would tend towards being you know not a good picture for the vegetable oils. And I quoted this in my wise traditions talk. I'll quote it again. Uh, I think Rhoda Barnes, the uh, late endocrinologist, probably said it best in the 1970s in his book uh, "Solve the Riddle of Heart Attacks" when he said that you know everyone should be free to play Russian roulette with their health. Uh, but in the case of the polyunsaturated fats, it's only fair to give them the warning that the gun probably contains live ammunition. And I, th I think that's the best <laughs> way to put it. That is a wonderful quote and one I haven't heard. I love that. I hear lots of people uh, who you know come to come to the blog and they say, you know, canola oil has to be good as omega three, and there's lots of reasons to to say, come on, look look at the research. But what about things like olive oil? Do you do you recommend or based on your research, do you believe? that there's a certain amount of fat that should come from saturated versus unsaturated in an ideal diet? Uh, well, I think that, you know, if you look at the needs of a mammal, it seems to favor a mix of saturated and monounsaturated fats. If you look at any of the animal fats, particularly if you look at ruminants, ruminants are interesting because, you know, red meat fats, because the uh, animal is less vulnerable to fluctuations in dietary fat. And so it's, it, I think it's more reflective of the animal's needs. You clearly see plenty of monounsaturated fat. You know, if you eat beef fat, for example, suet or tallow, uh, you're getting a pretty good mix of saturated and monounsaturated fat, and even a slight favoring of monounsaturated fat. So I think that you know the the same is true if you had you know humans on a very low fat diet. There, our bodies would synthesize fat from carbohydrate and they'd make a mix of monounsaturated and saturated fats. So I think that, you know, the, if the type of fat you eat matters, then I think it, I think if you are eating a lot of fat, it's probably safest to eat fats that are going to give you a mixture of, of saturated and monounsaturated fats and, and a fairly low polyunsaturated fatty acid intake because that that is what best reflects the needs of of a mammal for the different fatty acids. You do have populations that eat an extraordinary amount of coconut and seem to do quite well, like on Tokelau, which is another Pacific island. Uh, you know, they're consuming about half their calories from saturated fat. They're not consuming a lot of monounsaturated fat, and uh, they seem to be very healthy. So. I wouldn't be too dogmatic about the need for monounsaturated fat, but certainly olive oil is a traditional oil in the Mediterranean, 
And I think that, you know, because of its polyunsaturated fatty acid content, I wouldn't want to eat a diet that was 60% olive oil, but I think to use it in moderation is fine. And what's your take on cooking olive oil? Well, I, I mean, the less you cook oils, the better. So I, I think cooking olive oil, you know, if it's moderate or light cooking, I think it is going to be okay, but I I wouldn't subject it to high heat. And I think, you know, the the less cooked oil you eat, probably the better. That's my general take. That, that's definitely kind of how we position it on, on the Bulletproof Diet is that if if it's mono or especially polyunsaturated, try to heat it as little as possible. And if you're going to cook, go with the more saturated fats just because eating oxidized polyunsaturated fats probably isn't a good idea for cancer. Or uh, yeah, well, you know, saturated fats can oxidize at really high temperatures too. So it's not... Yeah. Uh, I don't want to give people the idea that just because a fat is predominantly saturated, you can subject it to deep frying temperatures and get away with it. So, uh, but I guess that I agree. I agree. You know, if you're going to use it for cooking more saturated, the better, uh, there's other considerations too, like, you know, compounds besides the fats that can lead to smoking and so on. So if you choose, if you choose oils and fats that have a high smoke point and are low in polyunsaturated fat, relatively rich in saturated fat, I think those are the best for cooking. But uh, but again, I think that you know you want to. Uh, I think that it's best to emphasize uh, raw, steamed, simmered food in the diet. And uh, you know the the if you're frying things in a pan with oil, I think that's fine. But it should be a minority of a diet, and not your. It shouldn't constitute, you know, 70 or 80% of your food intake. Um, I, I definitely think you're on the right track there. Most of what I eat is not cooked in fat. I cook it in a little bit of water or some steam, and then I add the fat when I'm done. Even French fries uh, that I would make in the oven are, you know, broiled, and then you know, they might soak in some melted butter, and they taste great, but they weren't fried in it because it has a different effect on, on the way you feel. Yeah, I, I tend to do things like that, too. I mean, I might make a soup, for example, and, uh, you know, I, I find that I need a certain amount of fat in my diet just to, you know, just stay full and satisfied. Uh, so if I make a, if I make a soup, I might add the oil at the end and then I, you know, I get enough, I get the amount of fat that I need, but I'm not subjecting it to much heat. So it sounds pretty similar to what you do. Very much. And in fact, my favorite soup on earth is just steamed vegetables tossed in a blender with, you know, half a stick of butter and some salt. Uh, you know, it, it's a tough life, but I can eat that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now you mentioned soup, and this is a, a question where I, one of the areas where I, I've done the kind of extensive biohacking, lost a uh, hundred pounds, and you know, done years of research with. In fact, the Silicon Valley Health Institute is a, a nonprofit that I've uh, been on the board of or as the chairman of for for several years. And we bring a lot of researchers in. So the stuff you're saying to me is kind of music to my ears because we've heard different points that you've made from different people, some of whom were considered crazy and some of whom were very mainstream. But one area that I'm a little bit, that I have a question about is on the wisdom of making bone broth. And I know about Weston A. Price. I'm a huge fan of, you know, healthy traditions and all that. But if you're boiling polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is bone marrow, and collagen proteins, which get denatured when you heat them, and you're doing it for long periods of time, aren't you creating an inflammatory mix? Well, you know, gelatin is denatured collagen, and it's, it's you know, all of the properties of, of gelatin are uh, dependent on the denaturing of collagen. And I think gelatin 
has an anti-inflammatory reputation for pretty good reason. I think you're, I'd be more concerned about the fat. And in fact, I tend to skim the fat off of my broth when I use it. I, I mean, I suppose you could judge by the smell. If it doesn't smell rancid, it's, it's probably, you know, okay to use. I, I agree with you that you probably don't want to be using that fat when it's been cooked for a day, uh, as a, as a staple fat. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, so I think that would address one of my big concerns about making a bone broth soup. Now the formation of glutamate from just long time cooking there, are you familiar with uh, glutamate formation from, uh, from proteins that are to nature for long periods of time? Is that an area where you've read or is that kind of outside your domain of expertise? Uh, I would say it's outside my domain of expertise, but I've, you know, I've read of people who are very sensitive to glutamate who can't tolerate bone broth for that reason. I mean, that, I, you know, I, I was once uh, had a discussion with someone about uh, that this person's boyfriend was extremely sensitive to glutamate and would have seizures in response to fermented foods and bone broths. But I think that's, you know, way in the tails of the distribution of people's tolerance for glutamate and I think is you know, only relevant to people who have very extreme sensitivities. Got it. Now, in terms of getting collagen, uh, what what I use is a low temperature grass fed uh, type two hydrolyzed collagen uh, that hasn't been heated, and I notice a, a note just a, a difference in how I feel with that versus say using the gelatin, which is fully denatured. Um, I'm also though using one that's a low uh, low peptide size, so it's very absorbable. Uh, have you seen any research on differences in types of collagen and food, or uh, is that also kind of far from the fat area where you tend to focus? Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much way outside my area. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, got it. I'm, I'm like really interested in how do we hear about your experience? Um, very, okay, I'm just I'm very interested in you know the ultimate collagen out there, and and I've got the best one I've been able to find. Um, but I'm always thinking, is there a way I can make it myself even better? So I think uh, um, we'll have to to table that one. Uh, well, I mean, I think for for the for the typical family, making bone broth is probably the most economic and convenient way to get uh, collagen into their diets. So more than there, just. There may, there may be ways to improve that, like you're discussing, but it's just it's a it's a pretty inexpensive and convenient thing to be able to throw a bunch of bones in a in a slow cooker crock pot and and uh, you know just harvest them whenever harvest stock whenever you have time to. Uh, so that that's a that's a very fair point. Now we've talked a lot about avoiding cancer, avoiding heart disease, and and things like that. A big part of the the bulletproof stuff that I do has first I you know regenerated my health and and recovered from a lot of really tough things. But there's also a big focus on cognitive performance, uh, physical performance, and for lack of a, a better word, just just kicking more ass. <laughs> In terms of the, uh, the the nutritional recommendations and the research that you've seen, are there any recommendations that stand out as making people have better memories, better mental performance, more energy, or more endurance? Uh, sure. There are probably lots of things that do that. Um, but you know, uh, w one of my interests that I've written a lot about is choline. I wrote a lot of, a lot of posts on my blog about choline at the end of last year and with respect to fatty liver disease. But 
Choline, of course, is also very important to the brain. It's uh, found most abundantly in liver and egg yolks. And uh, there are some rat experiments where they found that if you give uh, choline, this especially applies to pregnant women and women yes. who are nursing for the first few years of life. If uh, you give rat, rats at the corresponding uh, periods of development choline that's you know three times their apparent requirement, they have uh, huge boosts in uh, memory and mental performance of all types, and it eliminates their age-related decline in memory. And, you know, the age-related decline in memory is something that we're all familiar with. If we're not old yet, we know we know other people who, uh, you know, in our lives who whose memories decline as they get older. And uh, and it's sort of a typical feature of life. Whenever you start forgetting stuff, you figure you must be getting older. Uh, if that, in fact, is uh, preventable uh, by supplying sufficient choline during pregnancy and lactation, I think that's uh, something pretty huge that we want to take advantage of uh, but and you know liver of course is rich in so many other things that are likely to to boost mental performance and physical performance including all of the b vitamins and uh you know a lot of lipoic acid and carnitine and, and all these different uh, things so i think that i think liver is it's certainly in my experience that I, I definitely feel better when I eat liver and and I definitely feel like it boosts my mental and physical performance. I think that's probably the most overlooked food in the typical uh, modern diet that could be used to boost functioning of all kinds. There's definitely good research on liver to the point that um, uh, being that I, I did do raw diets for a while and I'm still not opposed to them, I, I once did a a raw lamb liver smoothie. And I, I'm the kind of guy who'll eat anything if I think it's going to make me perform better or feel better. And I have to tell you, that was the most horrible thing I've ever done in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a way to make liver taste good and still healthy? <laughs> well, you know, the if you can reverse engineer Takashi's raw liver recipe, Takashi's the restaurant in the East Village, New York City. And, uh, I they serve a raw liver dish there, and I'll tell you that their raw liver dish was better than any liver that I've ever made, cooked or raw. So if you can uh, if you can visit their restaurant and and try to reconstruct their recipe uh, and reverse engineer it, I think that you've probably found something roughly equivalent to the Fountain of Eternal Life. Because uh, certainly, if you can make it yourself, it's going to be a lot more affordable than eating it there. Uh, but I know, I know it involves uh, it involves marinating it in sesame oil and I think lime. But I, wow. I don't know the I don't know the details or the proportions or whether anything else is done to it. So when I have some time, I'm going to try to reverse engineer it myself. But we'll see. I think we should have uh, we should have dinner there, and uh, we'll spring along a mass spectrometer. It'll be easy. Oh yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, th- thanks for that pointer. I- I'm sure other people on the uh, who are listening to the podcast might say, "How, how can we do liver?" Um, in uh, in terms of eggs, by the way, uh, our book recommends multiple, multiple raw egg yolks uh, during and even before pregnancy. And my wife, who's a Karolinska trained physician, uh, I used to make ice cream for her with eight or nine egg yolks in it that we'd eat at night uh, when we were when she was pregnant and when we were working to conceive. 
So I, I think that there's pretty good evidence behind that enough that, you know, we made it part of our planning. Egg yolks and liver are also really high in biotin. And when you're at the preconception point, I think that it's, I think it's advisable for that reason too, to eat a lot of egg yolks because uh, biotin requirements, there's pretty decent evidence that biotin requirements increase during pregnancy and that repleting biotin might be able to prevent birth defects. Uh, so I had written an article on pregnancy nutrition back a few years ago for the Weston A. Price Foundation. And uh, that was one of the things I recommended was increasing more egg yolks and, uh, you know, a pal- certainly palatable way to do that is to make some ice cream and throw some raw egg yolks in the ice cream. I think most pregnant women would probably enjoy that. I have the recipe. I, I think it's up now. If not, it should be up shortly. But I actually called it uh, Get Some Now Ice Cream because even if there's no pregnancy involved, I think there's some signaling that happens when, when the body gets enough of those nutrients. It actually has like effects that say, wow, it's, it's time to reproduce. Like, like you can just feel a difference. And so I, more than one person who's tried this recipe for ice cream has said that, you know, an hour after the ice cream, it's a very successful date and it's repeatable. So, you know, <laughs> life can be worse. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. there's something endearing about making ice cream for someone that might help with that too. So. Oh, yeah. I think that that's a part of the whole thing. Bulletproof coffee is something that Dave created that's gotten really popular and it's basically you take really low-toxin, high-performance coffee that we have now on the site, and you mix it with 50 grams of grass-fed butter and some MCT oil in it. And a lot of people, you know, we just talked about saturated fat a good bit, still avoid full-fat dairy. And they'll say, so maybe they don't think saturated fat is bad for you, but for some reason they want to just eat less, and so they choose skim milk and all these low-fat dairy products. Is there any reason that might be bad for you besides the fact that they're just depriving themselves of the nutrients and saturated fat? I've heard that the presence of beta-cellulin and some other compounds in milk and dairy products, when it's removed from natural fats like CLA and other compounds, might be a bad idea. That's possible, and I've I've written it uh, about that before, uh, about the beta-cellulin issue. I think that it's... I mean, you, you have to realize that when you're speculating based on uh, either mechanism or some molecules in the food, then you're really off into speculation land. And what you're saying might be true and it might be completely false. So I think that um, I think it's important to speculate, but to realize that what we're doing is speculating. And I think that you know, Dave's point earlier about self-experimentation comes in here. You know, I think it's important not to fear the saturated fat, but it's also important to look at your own experience and how your body is responding to these things. And some people just at least report doing better on diets that are lower in fat, and other people report doing better on diets that are higher in fat. And I tend, unless I have some compelling reason not to, to take people's reports about their own experience seriously. So I think if someone consistently finds that if they eat less dairy fat, they do better in terms of, you know, their weight, their physique, their energy, then I think it's fine for them to avoid eating too much dairy fat. But I certainly wouldn't be afraid of it. And I would certainly want people to be aware of the potential benefits of dairy fat. And I think those are very real. So I'm I'm somewhat open-minded about it. I'm not going to tell people, you know, 
you can't eat you can't ever remove the butter from your dairy product or you know eliminate the butter or cream from your coffee uh but at the same time i think it's important to recognize that the potential health promoting effects of those foods do exist i think that's an excellent way to put it we've talked a little bit about how excess polyunsaturated fat may even increase the risk of things like cancer and heart disease and so it seems like a good idea to try and just basically get what we need and really not much more. And there's some kind of debate about what polyunsaturated fats we actually need, how much we need, and I was hoping you could kind of clear that up for us. Sure. A few years ago, I did a lot of research into this, and I published uh, a report on my website called How Essential Are the Essential Fatty Acids? And this is the PUFA report part one. There's, there is a sequel coming out. It's taking me a long time to write it. Uh, but the, the first part of that, and uh some of these findings were summarized in an article that I wrote for uh, Wise Traditions for the Western Price Foundation called Precious Yet Perilous. But my basic conclusions about the requirement for polyunsaturated fatty acids are that, uh, first of all, the requirement is infinitesimal for adults who are healthy and who are not uh, planning and who are not uh, women who are planning to conceive, who are pregnant, or who are lactating. And uh, the requirement for these fatty acids, I mean, when I say infinitesimal, I mean, if you tried to eat an essential fatty acid deficient diet, you probably wouldn't be able to. Uh, but the requirement for these fatty acids really kicks in during several circumstances or life stages. Uh, the first is growth and development all throughout infancy and childhood. The second is a woman who is planning to become pregnant, is pregnant, or is lactating, or recovering from pregnancy and lactation. So basically, women throughout most of their childbearing years, if they're planning on bearing children uh, you know, through that period, uh, are, are going to need more essential fatty acids. And the third is any other category of growth, whether at the you know most microscopic or tissue level or you know in the whole sort of organismal level, what I mean is if someone's recovering from an injury, you know you got cut then uh, and you need to heal your wound, that is a form of growth because uh, you might not be getting any bigger, but you're you know you need to repair that wound and that involves tissue growth. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, you might have a bodybuilder who is working out for the specific purpose of gaining muscle mass. And uh, that person's not healing from an injury in the same way that the person healing from the wound is, but they are getting bigger and they are creating, you know, just more tissue all over the place, especially in the skeletal muscle. Uh, and then the last, the last type might be uh, during a degenerative disease where, and this is, this is true of most degenerative diseases, where you have oxidative destruction of uh, these vulnerable essential fatty acids within your body, and you need to replace them. So you might not be synthesizing new tissue, but you need to be constantly refilling what's being depleted from the tissues that you already have. Uh, so in those cases, the requirement for essential fatty acids becomes active. 
but it is still very low. And the animal experiments suggest that it is far less than 1% of our calories. Uh, I, I say animal experiments. There are some, some data from humans, just very little. Uh, but the, the requirement is probably far less than 1% of our calories, especially if we're consuming uh, the essential fatty acids within a context of a diet that is rich in vitamins and minerals, especially vitamin B6, uh, magnesium, uh, but nutrient dense in general, and is low in refined sugars, heated vegetable oils, and other things that are going to promote oxidative stress. So in that ideal dietary context, the requirement is so low that I think all you need to do is eat some traditional animal foods. Uh, you know, fish, cod liver oil are excellent omega-3 sources. Egg yolks and liver are excellent uh, omega-6 sources. Uh, if the animals are raised on pasture, then even egg yolks and liver, uh, especially egg yolks, can also become a decent source of omega-3s. Uh, but really, really any of these animal foods should be sufficient for most people. Uh, we don't know how much the requirement increases during pregnancy exactly. So I don't think that it's, uh, I think it's a good idea to eat pretty liberally of things like egg yolks and seafood during pregnancy because of all those other nutrients that are coming in with those foods anyway. Even if you don't need to eat, you know, several egg yolks every day for your essential fatty acid requirement during pregnancy, you might still be benefiting from getting the biotin. You might still be benefiting from getting selenium and iodine and other things from seafood. Uh, so I, and then, I, and then of course, finally, if there are, if there are people who have uh, genetic polymorphisms that decrease their ability to synthesize essential fatty acids from plant oils, then for those people during these life stages where the requirement increases, it, maybe, they, maybe they might need more than other people. Uh, so I think it's you know trial and error. If you have symptoms of essential fatty acid deficiency and you think you're consuming enough, try eating more. Maybe there's a specific reason that you need more. But for most people, uh, especially adults who aren't going through these stages of growth and repair, the requirement is so small that I think all you need to do is include some traditional animal foods in your diet and you should theoretically be all set. I think that that's really well put. Uh, the research that we did for the Better Baby book uh, had us decide to recommend DHA supplementation for kids under seven and during pregnancy simply because until you turn about seven, you, uh, when you're a child, your body isn't really capable of synthesizing DHA. Apparently, it can make EPA, but the DHA pathways aren't mature enough. So there you can get DHA from the diet and, you know, certainly we eat a lot of smoked salmon and things like that uh, with, with my kids as well as raw egg yolks and various other things. Uh, I'm with you though. Uh, I'm, I question the value of fish oil supplementation and I actually take krill oil myself because I think that having some of the EPA is phosphorylated is probably worth doing, but it's a relatively small amount and it comes with astaxanthin, which is pretty good. I think, yeah, I think the, um, the evidence is pretty, I mean, Somewhat speculated. I don't know. I'm not going to say everyone needs to eat krill oil, but if you have, especially if you're trying to uh, target those 
fatty acids to the brain, then if you can get them in phospholipid form like they are in krill oil, there's pretty decent evidence uh, suggesting that that would increase their bioavailability, especially the nervous system. Right. It's one of those things that it's certainly not definitive. It's just uh, sort of the best guess we have. And I seem to feel better when I do it. I don't know, maybe it's placebo, but you know, there's still value in the placebo thing. The crow won't mind. <laughs> so, so I have two more questions for you before we wrap up the show today. Sure. Um, the first one is, what about tests for oxidized LDL? Are they accurate? Are they good? Should people be paying attention to that or should they just not worry about it altogether? I think the tests for oxidized LDL are, are mostly at research level at this point. You know, there are studies that show that people who have higher oxidized LDL in their plasma using certain assays have higher risk for heart disease. So you would think if the test was not measuring anything meaningful that they wouldn't find those associations. So I, th- I think that the test probably carries some meaning, but I think that we're far from the point where I would actually want to recommend people go out and get oxidized LDL tested. And there are a few reasons for this. First of all, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure what's available to the consumer through, uh, through the doctor's office, but most of the assays for oxidized LDL out there are uh, immunoassays, meaning they're antibody-based assays. And I think there are a lot of questions I would have about exactly what they're detecting. And, uh, and they're, uh, I really question their ability to fully characterize the type of oxidation that's present in plasma. I think what you would ideally want to do is, you know, if you really want to look at the oxidation of LDL particles in the plasma, you want to be able to take the LDL particles and separate their constituents and actually quantify all of the specific uh, different types of oxidized components. And you definitely can't do that with the the current assays being used. Um, And then there's another question, which is, does does the presence of oxidized LDL in plasma, is that a good marker for the amount of oxidation actually going on? And that's uh, very difficult to tease out at this point because when once LDL oxidizes in plasma, it uh, pretty quickly is cleared from plasma. So there are a lot of, I think, questions that would remain about interpreting those tests. And there are not, there are not good, there isn't a good pool of data from prospective studies showing that these assays can be used in a consistent manner to add information to cardiovascular disease risk beyond what people are already testing for. Until we get to that point, I am not going to recommend that people start getting these tests. I can tell you that I don't regularly track mine. I did because I've been tracking changes for about almost 10 years now using a whole bunch of anti-aging profiles uh, working with uh, Dr. Miller out of Los Gatos. And uh, my LDL went up when I went on the, the pure, uh, you know, pure 60% of my diet from, from fat with at least half of that being saturated and very, um, very low PUFAs. I've been doing this for years. So I said, all right, you know, what's going on here? There could be thyroid things. There could be other things. So we ordered an LPPLA2 test to try and more, more characterize the types of LDL and, and end of the day, looking at all this stuff, you know, zero risk of, of heart disease, looking at all of the different variables in the blood. Is the LPPLA2 test something that people who have high LDL when they're eating a healthy diet is something that they should use or not use? 
I don't know. I can't give you an answer to that. I, I'm, I, for any of these things, I think that if you're interested and you're the type of person who wants to measure lots of things and play around with them, that's something I would do. It sounds like it's, it's like you're the type of person who would do that too. Then I think any of these things can be can be interesting. What I meant when I said, uh, you know, about the oxidized LDL, and this would apply here, uh, about not recommending it, I don't recommend people not get it, uh, any of these, you know, kind of newish tests. I just don't, I don't want to give people the impression that the interpretation is so straightforward that uh, if they're not that type of person who wants to measure tons of things and, and play around with them, that I don't want to give them the impression that this is that the interpretation is very straightforward, and now, if now that they get this test, they have you know higher quality information than than anything else they could have could have gotten. I, I'm not ready to say that about uh, very many blood lipid tests besides the ones that are already quite popular. So, the, in fact, that's my last question for you today. If you only could have one lab test or one lab panel that you were going to use to track your health, what would you pick? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, certainly that's going to depend on uh, circumstance. But uh, I I don't think, I mean, if you're talking about a biochemical profile, I, I really don't think that there's any singular factor that's predictive of of your total health. So maybe it would, I think it would be some kind of fitness test. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what I would pick, but I would I would want to pick something holistic. I'm I'm not I'm not quite sure about body temperature yet. But that might be one. Maybe yeah. some kind of uh, maybe you could uh, you know run a mile and see how out of breath you are. <laughs> are you familiar with heart rate variability testing? That that actually might might be the one that's most predictive and holistic. And it it even could include your you know, one mile run test to see how how quickly you return to a, a healthy state of variability. I, I I don't know, just guessing. Have you even? Yeah, I'm that? not familiar in the sense that I've heard of it. Not familiar in the sense like that I've looked into it in detail. I guess my point is the last thing we want to try to do is is to reduce health down to a simple laboratory test. There, you know, the reality is that even the most reliable laboratory tests are some sometimes quite difficult to interpret. And what we want to yeah. do is take a more holistic vision of total health rather than using some surrogate marker uh, in our blood, I guess is my main point. It's that question of how do you feel at the end of the day that, right. that's most important. Right. On, on how, that, how do you feel uh, and how are you functioning? Yeah. Right, exactly. How do you perform? How do you feel? You, you said it. Chris, thank you so much for being on our show today. Can you help us close the show by telling everyone the URL for your site one more time and how they can learn more about what you do? Sure. Uh, my site is cholesterolandhealth.com. That's cholesterol-and-health.com. My blog is The Daily Lipid. You can get there by going to cholesterolandhealth.com and clicking on blog or just searching Google for The Daily Lipid. It should show up. And on my blog, The Daily Lipid, I post links to anything I write elsewhere. And that includes uh, anything I write on my blog, Mother Nature Obeyed, for the Weston A. Price Foundation at westonaprice.org, uh, or you know, any, anything that I, that I write or publish anywhere else. And you can also keep up with me on Facebook or Twitter. And for all the people listening to our show today, I have to tell you that Chris is one of those bloggers that I, I read pretty much everything he writes, and it, that's a very, very short list. 
Uh, so Chris has definitely earned my respect. And if you are interested in biohacking or interested in the Bulletproof Diet or things like that, what Chris writes is very reasoned. It, it's well-written. He thinks for himself, and I can't recommend it more highly. Thank Thanks. you so much. That's a great honor. If you'd like to learn more about biohacking, check out the blog at bulletproofexec.com. Uh, this is a, a labor of love for me. I have a full-time, very busy executive job, and uh, the fact that people are listening and commenting and asking questions, and that I know that this is helping people feel better and helping people just live more powerful lives, for me, actually, is very meaningful. So thank you, everyone, for listening today and all the time you listen. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.